This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Joshua and I'll be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Jared Rubin about his book Rulers, Religion and Riches, Why the West Got Rich and the Middle East Did Not. Jared is a professor at the Ardra School of Business and Economics and the co-director of the Institute for the Study of Religion, Economics and Society at Chapman University. His book Rulers, Religion and Riches was published in 2017 and has been awarded the Lyndon Williamson Prize by the Economic History Association and the Douglas North Best Book Award by the Society of Institutional and organizational economics. It has been translated into Urdu and it's currently being adapted into Arabic. We've got lots to talk about today, we'll need so much time, so we ought to get started. Jared, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you very much for having me, Josh. Looking forward to this. Thank you. Perhaps we could start by talking a little about yourself and your journey in academia. What got you interested in economics and economic history? Question. Um, so it started with my first semester, my very first year of undergraduate. I took a an undergraduate course in economics. I had no idea I wanted to do anything like that. I thought I was going to be a mathematician. Um, I, I went to the University of Virginia, and there's this course that almost everybody there takes by Professor Ken Elzinga, and it's really it's just an amazing course. And I knew after that semester that that's what I wanted to do with my life. Um, it just so happened I wanted to be a math major anyway, and those two things go kind of hand in hand when both applying for grad school and, and economics, at least, but also succeeding in grad school. Um, I had no idea I wanted to do economic history, though. Um, in fact, I thought I wanted to be a macroeconomist when I got to grad school. Um, that lasted for about three weeks in grad school, and I realized what graduate macroeconomics was like. Um, and really, by the end of my first year of grad school, um, for uh, listeners out there that don't know this, the first year of economics grad school is quite hard. Um, it's quite dispiriting. Uh Depending on where you go, I think this is true of most places I know of. Um, and I was about to drop out. Um, so in my second year, I, we kind of I went to Stanford for graduate school. We had to take generally take two years to if, if you wanted to kind of leave with a master's. Um, so my first semester or my first quarter of my second year, I took a class with Avner Greif, so well known economic historian. I didn't really know of him at the time, I, and I certainly didn't go to Stanford to study with him. Uh, or because of him, I had never heard of him, but when I went there and I had only vaguely heard of him when I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took this class on, you know, it's on, it was on institutions. And so he was writing his book at the time. His book came out in 2006, Institutions and the Path to the Modern Economy, which one of really one of the groundbreaking books in 
institutional analysis and economic history. And the class just blew me away that economists could do this. Because I was also, as an undergraduate, I was interested in religion as well. I minored in religion only because really they wouldn't allow me to triple major. Um, And I thought it was just something I'd kind of read on the side. This is just something, it's not something that it's any personal conviction of mine that has gotten me interested in religion. I'm not, not that I think it really matters for um, academic study, but I'm a, I'm I'm an a-religious person myself, but I've always been fascinated by religion. Actually, it's in part because um, I think I'm a-religious. I, I, I understand the impact that it has on people, the effect that it has on people, even from, you know, from a microeconomic perspective, the way it incentivizes people to do certain types of actions. And I just didn't get it because that's not, that's, it didn't affect me in that way. So it was something I wanted to know more about. And I thought it forever would be something that I just studied on the side. I read on the side, you know, as I'm going to sleep or something. And then this class completely blew me away. Cause one thing that Greif studies is uh, the, differences in the Christian world and the Islamic world and the role that both kind of cultural values as well as religious values have played in shaping uh, long-run economic development and long-run institutional development. And uh, probably within a month of starting that class, I went to him with a ton of ideas that I wanted to work on. And he graciously uh, took me on as his student, even though uh, those ideas were all very, very half-baked. Um, I think that's the way a lot of graduate students' uh, ideas are at the beginning, at least. And from there, I just I knew that this was something that I could spend the rest of my life doing. Um, and so from there, you know, I've spent more or less most of my career, including in grad school, so you know, pushing on 15, even closer to 20 years now, working on kind of this nexus between economic history, religion, institutions, and even culture uh, more broadly defined, not just, not always religion. Um, uh, And really what I originally focus on and still do focus on is these differences between Christianized Western Europe and historical Christianized Western Europe and the historical Middle East, Muslim Middle East. Um, And part, uh, there's a lot of reasons for this. And part is because I, yeah, I kind of initially knew quite a bit about Islam. Um, uh, so this was something I, I already had some some fascination with. Um, it's also because there's there's natural reasons, I think, to, to be interested in the two. The, there's so much historic overlap between the Middle East, you know, the Muslim world, for maybe lack of a better term, and the Christian West, both through trade, through, you know, th- through just geographic proximity. That and we also know that you know the Middle East, the Muslim world more generally, was well ahead of Europe for so long uh, economically after the spread of Islam, and then at some point there was a reversal of fortunes. And this was the types; of, these were the types of things that have had always fascinated me. And you know, I kind of realized at that stage in graduate school that these were the types of questions that maybe if I could even have a, a small slice of of an answer in, into that, it would make for from from my own perspective, a very satisfying career, but also just for an interesting life, I think, too. These are, I think if anyone can find questions they're passionate about and really just want to know the answer to, but also have in some way, shape or form, both the capacity to answer them, but also, you know, one thing I was hoping to do and I was fortunate enough to do is, you know, be paid to answer these in the sense that, you know, I'm a professor and the research part of my job is to do precisely this. Um, 
it would lead to an amazing life. And I was also extremely fortunate that my third year at Stanford, uh, we had a visitor for the year, uh, Timur Karan, who um, also very graciously dis, uh, took me on as one of his students. So they were both my um, my two advisors. And uh, he was at the time was a professor at University of Southern California. Now he's at Duke. Um, and he's probably, not probably, he is the world's leading uh, expert on the economic history of Middle East and Islam. And since then, yeah, both, both Avner and Timur and I have, or both myself and Avner and myself and Timur have worked on projects. We've, they, they've just been sources of inspiration in many, many different ways that, it, it, and really, so, I mean, this kind of shows, I think this story also shows the the role that luck plays. If I had gone to more or less, I think almost any of the other graduate schools I'd gotten into, my my life would be very different. And I would certainly not have written the book that I wrote or have studied what I did. Uh, I just so happened to be in the pla- the right place at the right time for doing exactly what I ended up doing. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a wonderful story and very, as you acknowledge, very much a serendipitous story. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious because you're not just an economist. You're also, as I think you've proven with this book and your attendance on this program, a historian. Yeah. So how does history inform the way you think and work as an economist? Yeah, so so history in of itself is, yeah, so some economic historians, I think, view history as a testing ground for their theories. I don't, I don't view it that way. I view history as something that we can gain some insight into, both for our own just intellectual curiosity, but also because it, it helps inform a whole host of things that we still care, that we care a lot about today. Namely, you know, the, the thing that I care about the most in, in terms of this, this line of research specifically, but you know, more generally as well, is you know, why some parts of the world are wealthy and others are, remain at least not wealthy. Maybe poor might be too strong a word, but that's, that's an important uh, question that I'm hardly the only person to ask. Uh, this is a, one of the oldest and most important questions in the social sciences, but it's also inherently a historical question. I, the, even though there are certainly uh, economists as well as other social scientists that attempt to answer such questions ahistorically, uh, thinking about you know, more modern relative prices or patterns of trade, things like this, and these are these are not necessarily unimportant. Um, they do, I think, at least explain kind of the proximate causes, but they don't explain the deeper causes. And this is one of the things that has always interested me. Again, you know, to I wasn't planning on studying these things, but as soon as I understood that I could study religion and study the history of religion too, because it, it's for me, it's also really hard to study religion without understanding, without studying history. I think the two go hand in hand. There's so much important uh, the, the there's so much to both modern religion as well as historical religion that's built into history that all of these things, I think, kind of mesh together into one, economics being kind of the third leg of these three. And for me, at least, it's very hard to understand any one of these three without the other. Mm. That's that's very true. Now, let's move on to the book itself. Could you tell us how you came to write this book? (laughs) Sure. So, um, the book itself is partially an outgrowth of my uh, PhD dissertation. So my PhD dissertation 
what I did there was I tried to fo- tried to think of a, a kind of a more general theory for how economically inhibitive religious norms kind of persist or don't. Because I was I was interested in that, so I, I applied it to usury restrictions in Islam and Christianity, taking taking restrictions on taking interest on loans, and I viewed this as kind of more of like a microcosm for what might be broader institutional differences between, say, Christian polities or Western Christian polities in the late medieval period and uh, Muslim polities over the same period. Namely because th- these these restrictions on taking interest, they were around in both religions for a very long time, Christianity well over millennium. In Islam, formally, they're still around today, even though, interestingly enough, as I think many people do know, they, they, they're very easy to get around and they've always been easy to get around. Yet, um, manifest usury or you know, straight up lending an interest has always been banned. And this was something that that fascinated me, not just you know, for the intellectual history of usury restrictions, which there has been done a lot of work on. That's not the type of history I was interested in, especially kind of coming at, coming at it from an economics perspective. But what are the, and really I should say a political economy perspective, because what I was interested in is what, what role did political economy play in either keeping the, these, these laws to persist or not? And my, what I came down to in the dissertation and then expanded on in a, you know, some of my first few papers coming out of, coming out of it were that the, the role that religious authorities played in legitimating rule was really important. Um, and we can think about this. Yeah, so I, as an economist, I think about these things maybe, in, 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 or I do in, in terms of equilibria. Namely, that there was there were that in you you might think of there being two different equilibria. One in which religious authorities have a lot of power to legitimate, maybe for historical reasons. One in one in which they have less power to do so. In the equilibrium where they have a lot of power to legitimate, the types of laws and policies you see are going to be ones that in. Are, are going to be ones in which religious authorities are at the bargaining table and the bar- this kind of political bargaining table is going to reflect their interests, right? And their, and their, not just their interests, but their, their bargaining power, which is strong. And over time, uh, you're going to see them continue to be strong because there's little incentive for rulers to take them out of the bargaining table, even if the types of laws and policies they want might be economically inhibitive. So yeah, you might be lowering your tax base, but these guys are keeping you in power. Essentially, whereas in a in a you know, so you might think of that, for lack of a better term, as the is the equilibrium in part of the parts of the Islamic world. Whereas after commerce really started to revive in Europe, and the, the church started to become a little weaker, they were they were certainly uh, not as strong as le- at legitimating as Muslim clerics were, at least the stronger Muslim clerics were you start to see an unraveling of this equilibrium in Europe and other people, namely, and the, the, the important ones become parliaments are the, uh, are the, the powerful players in parliaments become kind of alternative sources of legitimacy. Now, not all of this was in my dissertation. Uh, my, my dissertation essentially tried to focus on, or did focus on usury restrictions, kind of explaining what they were. There's a lot in my dissertation, which you know, has a, a lot of unnecessary detail um, and actually, it does form a chapter of this book. Um, uh, I do have a chapter in the book on user restrictions as kind of an example for the general mechanisms. But what I tried to do more more general, and I think the more most powerful chapter in the dissertation really tried to 
get at a theory for why these two diverged. And then from there, I built on this theory. Um, I did some work with some uh, some uh, some colleagues that you that used elements of this theory. So two colleagues, Metin Josko and Thomas Masali, both at the University of Connecticut. We use kind of similar theories and, and expanded on the theories too. They, they were certainly influential in the way I thought about this to think about why the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire, um, banned the printing press for nearly 250 years um, after knowing about it. So the Ottomans knew about the printing press in the 1480s. And uh, at least all the documents we have suggest that it was either explicitly or implicitly banned until 1727. Um, we view this as part of part of yeah, part of the same process. So, uh, namely, where you have religious authorities that have a lot of influence. Uh, there, we we call them legitimating agents. They're people in society that, for some reason or another, have the power to legitimate uh, political rule. And because they had so much bargaining power, and because for the in the the specific context of um, Muslim religious authorities, this was, the printing press was threatening to them. The, the, it threatened their intellect, their monopoly on all things intellectual, particularly all things uh, to do with the religion of Islam. Um, and this, so this, so this proved prescient too. The, uh, in in Europe, the the printing press helped spread the seeds of religious dissent. As soon as this, the printing press eventually spread in the Muslim world in the early nineteenth century. There were massive calls of reform of the religious establishment. So this was something that, you know, they were from their own self, self-interested perspective, were probably right to try to block. But again, what we're trying to what we tried to do in those papers and what I try to also do in the book is kind of put it in a more general framework for thinking about the political economy of why these types of laws and policies uh, might persist or not. Whereas in, in Europe, you know, the printing press spread very quickly. Uh, again, you know, for se- even though the church would have been wise to try to block it, as I just mentioned, you know, it was a major instigator of the Protestant Reformation, which, you know, essentially undermined the church in large parts of Europe. Um, but the church really didn't, or the church really didn't have power to do this by the time the printing press was invented in 1450, around 1450. They, they were already kind of, uh, out they already had a much weaker position vis-a-vis uh, secular rule than Muslim re- religious authorities did, um, certainly in the Ottoman Empire, but in large swaths of uh, the Middle East and elsewhere. So that's mm-hmm. kind of, I think that's kind of the the uh, a very long-winded way of uh, describing the the initial impetus, but also some of the ideas that originally helped form this book. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's not. It's not long-winded at all. I think you've done an excellent job of summarizing a good many years worth of research into just a couple of minutes. So I should point out that Jared, I think you've spent a good third of your life working on this very question. So every step of this, every piece of the puzzle, you've thought through very methodically and really planned it out very well. Yeah. So thank you. I appreciate you saying that because it certainly feels that way. There's. I make a joke about one paper when I, or when I used to present or when I used to present the book that I wrote one paper. It's actually a paper connecting the uh, printing press to the Reformation, mm-hmm. and I to, to write it. I I I I started to to write it when I realized that it would make the book's arguments much stronger if I could make that connection empirically. Um, so I collected a lot of data on printing presses, a lot of data on which places turned Protestant, a lot of other control data. 
And, you know, my, my joke was essentially that, that it was about two and a half years of my life for nine pages of the book, which is not, <laughs> not factually inaccurate, but, um, but no, but it is the type of thing that that's the way, especially economists work, I think more so than historians, because hi- history is such a book driven discipline that I wouldn't have done that for a book, a, a history book. Namely, I would have gotten a lot more leverage out of it, but what, uh, for, uh, in history, but Economics is a much more uh, article-driven discipline. So uh, most of, uh, not actually, it, it ended up being about forty percent of the book was in some way, shape, or form in one in an article that was published in an academic journal uh, somewhere. Now it's, it wasn't just stapled in the sense that you know, I didn't just take it verbatim and put it in the book. I, I, I rewrote you know, nearly the entire article. Took took large chunks out, placed different chunks in different parts of the book. But still, yes. No, the the book that certainly represents you. Yeah, I was published in 2017, and I started on these ideas in 2004. So it represents a certainly the lion's share of my academic career, and even a large fraction of my life at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, what I really liked about your book is how you chose to frame your argument. You allude, for example, to not just the concept of a great divergence, as most economic historians do, but a great reversal. You know how. Mm-hmm this equilibrium that you talk about shifted over time. In what ways does this great reversal paradigm challenge our conventional understanding of the economic history of the world? Well, I think, so the great reversal in, in many ways, and just to, to be clear, talking about the reversal, I'm well, in my book, I'm talking about the reversal between you know, the broader Middle East and Western Europe, um, because there were similar reversals, you could say, between Western Europe and China, Western Europe, and South Asia. Yeah, and then say even one thousand years ago, all three of those parts of the world were going to were, were ahead of Western Europe um, on mo- on most things we would think of in terms of you know economically, technologically, uh, scientifically. Um, and I think the, these things are in, in one way are known. I'm not. I'm by no means the first person to point out that there was a reversal of fortunes between Western Europe and the the rest of what we might say Eurasia, um, even because because even Eastern Europe, you know, which would have been the Byzantine uh, run, uh, ruled by the Byzantine Empire at this point, what would have been was ahead of of Western Europe, say you know, between between really the fall of the Western Roman Empire in about one thousand or so. Um, so in one on, on the one hand, this reversal of fortune is well known, but on the other hand, many of the leading theories start from the position of after the reversal has already happened. So it's trying to explain European ascendance without necessarily explaining why there was a reversal. Now, on the one hand, you might say that that there is a reason for this in that a lot of what happened, especially with industrialization and the century after, so yeah, say the 19th century, it was very much a European takeoff. And it wasn't necessarily the other parts of the world that had at once point at one point been ahead of Europe, really falling behind. It was it was fundamentally European takeoff. So there is some there, and and I don't get me wrong. I actually like most many of those um, those works um, that really focus on what was happening in Europe because you do have to focus, especially you know, maybe even more so on England um, or at least northeastern Europe or sorry northwestern Europe. At in you know say this maybe seventeenth uh, through eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, 
But there has been much less work done that tries to explain kind of the bigger picture within one framework. So if you want to, in my view, and this is how I frame, frame the book, is if you want to explain what was, you know, why, or if you want an explanation that invokes something, and my explanation is going to invoke religion, but not, and, and also to be clear, just in case, um, it, it's not clear. I don't really invoke any any aspect of religious doctrine in my mm-hmm. in my explanation, except for the fact that Islam is a bit better for historical reasons at legitimating rule. All other types of doctrine at best play a background role, and for the most part, don't play a role at all. But what I do say is that the reason that the that that this mattered is that the political economy. Of the of these you know, two religions and the, these two worlds, in a sense, were very different. If you want to, but I also say, look, if you want to explain, if you want to make an explanation that says that that political economy mattered for long run economic or political development, you also have to explain what, why, why did why did uh, the Middle East pull ahead for so long too? And if your explanation is only consistent with Europe pulling ahead. But not the Middle East, or you know, if you're looking at China or South Asia or wherever pulling ahead for so long, I think that that your explanation is lacking in something, and that's what my explanation tries to do. And you know, so to just to give a a, a slightly deeper dive into what the explanation is, at least for the initial part, in terms of why what allowed the, the Middle East to pull ahead is around the time of the spread of Islam in the seventh century. This is certainly a period where Europe's at its or Western Europe's more or less at its one of its low points following you know, the utter decimation of the, the Western Roman Empire. Uh, political rules really decentralized to the extent that it exists at all. There's large swaths of Europe that are more or less in kind of chaos, constant fighting, very little protection of uh, rights or not, not just property rights, but just physical rights. And the to a large extent, this was kind of true in the Arabian Peninsula and surrounding regions where Muhammad was born. And one thing that Islam does is it brings this unifying ideology, and not just ideology, but eventually over the next couple centuries, a political system. It brings in institutions to administer justice, to to just administer. Yeah, you know, it, it brings an administrative capacity through these Qadis that that end up being spread throughout these Islamic empires. And because of this, this allows for some for much more trade. It allows for you know, this kind of yeah. You know, the reason it allows for trade rather is you know you have this unifying ideology. You have currencies that that become much more widespread. You have a unifying language. You have protections that are offered. And a lot of this has to do with the role that Islam plays in politics. It, it allows for, in a sense, more powerful rulers to give these protections. And these are the types of protections that would have been great, extremely useful in Europe in the early medieval period. Now, yeah, there were rulers that that in theory had purview over a lot of land, like the Frankish kings, like Charlemagne, but they really actually did not have much administrative capacity or the capacity to administer law and order outside of a very narrow set of, of areas. Whereas this was not necessarily the case in the, the empires that followed Muhammad, the Umayyad and, 
an opposite empire, which which had much greater capacity to do this. And you know, part of the argument in the book, and this is, and to be to be fair, this is not the book doesn't spend a great deal of time on this, but what it does try to do early on is to show that that the argument is consistent, though, with the early rise of 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 Islam, and not just Islam, but the the early rise of Islamic economies. The argument, though, then says, "Well, look, it's the the uh, having religion and religious authorities play a key role in 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 politics is is good when or is good for economic development when the initial state or the initial conditions are such a such that of of the Arabian Peninsula or Western Europe in the seventh century, you know, relative chaos, highly decentralized things like that, because it because of this unifying element. However." It can also lead to an equilibrium, as as I call it, where you get stagnation, where now religious leaders have an important seat at the bargaining table. And because of that, so other interests are going to be left out of the bargaining table, namely, and the, the one I really focus on in the book are economic elites. And this is important not because economic elites have a the the, the views of the nation at their heart or or they they want everyone to have a, <laughs> a fair shake or anything. In fact, it's generally quite the opposite. It's mm-hmm. more that their self-interest often is consistent with the types of things that promote trade, promote growth, things like that, because that's, that's what they benefit directly from. And so the argument then says, well, once Europe eventually, you know, very slowly got out of these doldrums, been beginning with the commercial revolution, and really the 11th, but really taking off in the 12th and 13th century, it starts in the you know, northern Italian city-states and the low countries and spreads to a few other places, mainly in Central Europe. You, because you don't have as as strong – and of course, you know, the, the church played a huge role in politics in the medieval period. I'm, I'm of course not saying that. But the role it played was very, was still different and, was in, and in many ways was antagonistic towards secular rule, which is very different from the Middle East. And because of this – because the rulers in Europe weren't kind of tied to the church as as their only source, or not only source, because uh, as as a key source of legitimacy, they could look elsewhere, um, and they did eventually. Uh, you know, starting especially in the the late medieval period, and that's when they that's when they turned to parliaments, which is where you know, the economic elite got a bigger say in um, in state making and in the laws and policies of the state. And that's where the argument, I think, and that's where, yeah, I'd like to think I succeeded because that's, this is what I've just immersed myself in for so long. But this is at least what I'd like to think of as an argument that can explain both, in a sense, both the the initial uh, success of the Muslim world, but also its relative stagnation. And the term relative is really key here because, uh, yeah, ag- again, it is eventually Europe that just takes off. It's not necessarily the Middle East that falls well behind in absolute terms. Mm. I think you make a good point that it's very important that we clarify this misconception. Your book, although it's about the relationship between religion and economics, it's not so much about religious doctrine and theology yeah. so much as it is about how these religious institutions operated within the political economy of that time. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And th- this is something that I, you know, when presenting the book and even I hit it, if you know, you read the last chapter of the book, I have this section on misconceptions. The book, mm-hmm. you, whenever I present the book, 
within 10 minutes, I'd get something along these lines saying, well, how can you say this? This is, you know, this is not about the, the, the content of the religion. Why, the, why would the content of the religion have such large effects on long-run economic outcomes? And my answer was always the same. Was, That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying this at all. Um, and so slowly as I was writing the book, this was actually one of the bigger challenges, was figuring out a way to make it as clear as possible that at least my my theory is not based on these doctrinal differences. This is not to say that, yeah, I, I think it's an open question whether doctrinal differences matter. I tend to think they don't, but that's just not what my book is focused on. Um, that yeah, so so that that I think is 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 always kind of clear. And when you're dealing, and I've noticed this, you know, with both myself on other works and also colleagues that work in similar fields. Uh, when you're dealing with religion in particular, people have, you know, it, it, they're very tied to it. They have preconceived notions of what's good, what's not good. And uh, my goal is not necessarily to move them from those notions, but to to contextualize it and, and show that there's nuance. And it's not, and then really, it's not even often religion itself. It's it's the role that it plays in these larger institutions. And in the case of my book, political the, the political economy institutions of the regions I'm looking at. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to take a step back and you talk about how pre-modern Middle Eastern economies were more advanced technologically, economically than, than Western ones. What metrics would economists or historians have used to come to this conclusion? So this is something that you know, has been kind of largely, I think, largely viewed as, as uh, the, 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 going, the, the going thing in, uh, in studies of this period. So economically, for instance, we know that coinage is way more widespread. There's essentially no coinage in, for a long time in Western Europe. And anytime there was coinage, it was essentially from the Middle East or, or elsewhere. Um, and that's a big thing. Yeah, it's, it's highly suggestive of trade. Um, we have travelers' accounts knowing that yeah, we, we have population uh, population estimates. So the city of ba- so I, in, the, in one of the first uh, few pages of my book, you know, economic historians have tried to go back and estimate populations. There, yeah, you know, these are very fuzzy estimates, but they give you broad ideas of um, how big urban areas were. And urban areas are probably one of the best ways of um, of correlate or proxying rather for pre modern economic development because if if you had a if you had a large urban area, that meant well. First of all, meant you had the agricultural surplus to feed these people that were living in the cities and not producing food. But it also meant that you had a large you know, business in luxury goods because that the, the it was more of the luxury goods that were produced and consumed in the cities. And we we have we we know with near certainty that the city of Baghdad was way bigger than this was the opposite capital was way bigger, say, in the year 800 than anything in Europe. In fact, you know, the, the, the data supplied by other economic historians I know in the book 
is that Baghdad itself was bigger, bigger than the 13 biggest cities of Western Europe combined. Um, and if you look at the, the top cities of this period, they're all kind of near the, near the opposite capital in modern day Iraq. Uh, with the exception of Constantinople, which was actually, yeah, which was a Christian city at the time, uh, but a Byzantine city, you know, Western Europe had very small cities. So that would be on the, on the economic side, the evidence is just overwhelming that until the year 1000, the Middle East was fairly far ahead. Um, where that reversal happens, you could ask 10 different economic historians. They give you 10 different answers, I think. Um, but I don't think any of them would say that by 1700, the reversal had happened. Now, there are some economic historians that would say that the reversal hadn't happened yet in 1700 between Western Europe and China. Um, some like Ken Pomerantz, who's, you know, who coined the term the Great Divergence, puts it more or less after <laughs> after industrialization. Um, but yeah, there almost, almost all the evidence we have suggests that, yeah, Europe, or sorry, the Middle East was, especially in its, uh, in its richest parts, was, was pretty far ahead. Of, of Europe. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, technologically, um, we, we know that, that, you know, there's just there for, well, for one, there's very little, there's almost no technology produced in Europe between the fall of the Roman empire and, uh, the year 1000. Now that, that'll get me a li- in a little trouble that there was technology produced in this period. Um, a lot of it was relatively minor agricultural technology. Some of it war making technology, um, very, very little, and I can't think of anything off the top of my head that you would think of as kind of one of the fundamental innovations of the period. Most of most of them were, were coming from China, but mo- but to the ex- or or to some extent South Asia, a lot of it was coming through the Middle East as well. Um, so, so whether it was invented by Middle Easterners or used by Middle Easterners, I, I think it's a relatively uncontroversial statement to say that the technology you know, at the peak of the Abbasid Empire, which was you know in the <clears throat> ninth very early 10th century, but early 9th century was way ahead of uh, contemporary Europe at the time. Um, yeah. So, so and it's really just, it's a series of metrics. There's no one silver bullet, but everything we know from this period would suggest that. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the metrics you use in your book that I found particularly interesting was this idea of an urban center of gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope I'm explaining it right. It's yep. the weighted average position of the population of a particular region at a given point in time. And over time, we see this urban center of gravity shift quite miraculously away from the Middle East towards northwestern Europe in a leftward, you know, upward sloping trajectory. That's that's quite interesting and very much telling of the trend that you've observed here, isn't it? Yeah, no, it was kind of I, what I did for to, to calculate that was use these, these same population data we were just discussing. And so there, there's... Uh, these th- uh, three economists, uh, Bosker, Bering, and Van Zanden, who wrote, wrote a paper where they, and they've made this, these data public, that where they have population data from 800 through 1800, more or less for all of, you might think of it as Western Eurasia and North Africa. So you might think of it as the middle, or the, the, the Western Islamic world and Europe. Um, and so what I did was exactly as you described here, calculated what you can think of as an urban center of gravity. You can think about it as if Iraq is really highly populated in that area, it's going to pull the urban center of gravity to the southeast. If England's really highly populated, it's going to move it towards the northwest. 
And in a pre-industrial world, as we just discussed, population is one of uh, urban population. It might be the best metric we have. In a post-industrial world, that's a little different just because we've solved some of the um, the difficulties with, uh, with population, uh, with, with having large populations. So, so you can have poor cities that are, are large. That wasn't really the case um, in the pre-industrial era. And yeah, so as you described it, you know, if you look at in the year 800, 900, it's really pulled towards the southeast into you know that that crate that opposite cradle. In fact, the only thing pulling it west is Spain, which is Muslim at the time. Uh, the Umayyad Caliphate in Spain is, is so on, on mainland Europe um, until the year 1000. Really, Spain was by far the leader. It was Muslim Spain was by far the leader on everything we think about, including architecture and uh, you know centers of learning and things like this. Um, and then, yeah, that that figure in my book, it's a, it's, a, it's also in the first chapter. It you it it's the reason I include it in the book is it's just, it's just so striking. It moves, it's moving kind of just straight up towards the northwest. Um, eventually, where eventually the locus of economic activity is, and to be clear, it's not just England. It eventually becomes the Dutch Republic as well, which is kind of one of the first real modern economies based on trade, highly urban. Uh, so yes, yeah, it's, it's Northwestern Europe that that eventually becomes the the center, and and part of the and of most of the book, the reason that that's in chapter one, those figures, um, is that that's the puzzle is explaining why that center of gravity moves in the way it does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's certainly true. I think the podcast medium definitely doesn't do justice to your research and findings in this book, but all the more reason to purchase it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'm curious about what you have to say about alternative explanations for you know this great divergence. You mentioned um, Ken Pomeranz earlier, but I'm interested in finding out what you think about you know the broad sweeping narratives of Jared Diamond, um, the theory of wage differentials favored by Bob Allen, and this Protestant work ethic. It's quite controversial the Protestant work ethic sure. by Max Weber. Sure. Um, so I guess I, I could I take any of those. So um, or I'll, I'll take those in the way you asked them. So Diamond first. Um, Diamond's argument you know, is mainly based on geography, of course. Mm-hmm. I I think there are aspects of it that are really important. I and I and one thing my book does, and and I tr- and I try to do early on is to say you know look there are other explanations for what's going on. They're not necessarily all wrong. I um I I am accounting for a part of this puzzle. This is a huge puzzle, and looking at in my case about a thousand years of history. In Diamond's case, much more than a thousand years of history. Monocausal explanations are not going to be correct in the sense that there's so many things causing. However, we can kind of focus and really kind of dig deep into one aspect and kind of see what role this might have played in this. Now, Diamond, so so all this is to say, I think, purely geographical explanations do, ha- do have some really, really significant insight. Um, and I think Diamond's explanation is much stronger on Eurasia versus the Americas. Um, so his argument, you know, I think one of the I think one of the more convincing parts of his argument is kind of the east-west axis of Eurasia meant that it was a lot easier to kind of trade ideas and grains and you know and and have domesticated animals because you had 
yeah, a lot, a lot of people living within kind of a similar latitude that, that were, that, you know, natural barriers didn't, didn't hinder such things. Whereas the Americas is very much a North South axis. And so you're not going to have, you know, contact between, you know, say even the Incas and Aztecs or things like that, where are certainly the, the, uh, the natives of what is now the U S or Canada. Um, so, so on that, I think Diamond's very good. I think he's. I, I think his explanations are harder to square with reversals within Eurasia, which is what my book is about, of course. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, the in its particular reversals of almost any type. Um, it now you could take Diamond's argument as a starting point and say that maybe some of the the geographic explanations he points out led to maybe institutions that led to stagnation in one part, but not the other things like that. But that, that would also be putting words in diamond's mouth that aren't there. Um, so again, while I think, uh, you know, to talk about diamond, I think he's, I, I, I like that book, but I, I think for the specific question I'm asking, it leaves more unanswered than it answers. Um, so with Bob Allen's work, um, more ge- so his his works more generally on kind of relative relative prices. He so in a sense he and I are kind of asking different questions because he's much more interested in industrialization. Um, my book, in a sense, ends prior to the industrial revolution, uh, and my, I'm my, I'm trying to get at essentially why England in particular, but Northwestern Europe more generally, were in prime position to be the place that where the modern economy industrialization takes off by say 1700, if not before. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas that would have been very not obvious <laughs> yeah, a thousand years or even five, 600 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so Alan's argument is, is really once you get to that point, you know, he argues that England had high wages. So that means that, that they were the industrialists or capitalists were looking for ways to economize on labor and were more likely thus to invent, you know, or there was more incentive to invent labor-saving technologies than there wasn't, not just in uh, Europe, but in other parts of the world, especially um, where, you know, say, you know, he compares, say, uh, England and India, which, you know, eventually, or at least certainly on the, on an, by industrialization was a British colony. And, you know, labor was sufficiently cheap where it would have required an, yeah, an, an immense amount in order to make it, to make it worth it even to invest in, in the type of capital that made industrialization happen. Now, with respect to my book, I don't necessarily, like, I, well, I, I can leave my opinions on Alan's argument aside, um, <laughs> but I don't necessarily think that they contradict each other in that um, by where my book leaves off, England has become in a pretty good shape to uh, to be that leader, they, they've they've essentially become one of the economic powerhouses, and that's essentially where Allen's argument kind of starts. In that in that uh, parts of England had much higher wages than other parts of the world, and that's that for him is one of the key differences um, between England and the rest of the world. Uh, for my own sake, I, I think I tend to so the, the broader debate right now in economic history is more between. Uh, at least in terms of the industrial revolution is between Alan and uh, Joel Moykir's thoughts. I think mm-hmm. Joel Moykir is more about the, um, uh, yeah, the kind of what he calls the culture of growth or the enlightened economy where it's more about the you know, kind of bringing enlightenment ideas 
and you know there's cultural attributes within within England that are contributing to growth i i tend to fall i that, that's a, a terrible explanation of his you know his brilliance and his you know decades of work but I, uh you know, which might make it seem weird that i do tend to fall more along the lines of him uh, of his explanation but regardless i think both of those explanations uh are not necessarily inconsistent or consistent with my book in that they're if, if you want to make the argument, and I, I will th- I'll throw out a hint that I am working on another book right now with a co-author who I'll who I'll keep uh well I'll keep in the dark for now because we'll 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 we're going to to announce the the book not, not too long, um, but we're working on something that kind of brings all these ideas together. Um, but for now, I think from my book, you would have to kind of put words either in my mouth or their mouths to make those connect. Now, the one you would not have to do that with is the third one you mentioned, Weber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the Weber's Protestant, uh, Protestant ethic hypothesis is very much contradictory to, to, to my own. Um, because this is precisely what we mentioned, we mentioned not that long ago. His, his hypothesis is that doctrine mattered. You know, yep. Is that this especially Calvinist notion of uh, predestination and the elect, that people were elect to go you know, to heaven and that was predestined and they wanted to show that they were the elect and thus they had, thus they worked harder. And, and he views this as a uniquely Protestant thing. Um, I think he got his correlations right in a sense, but his causal causation wrong. And all I mean by that is that after the reformation, it is the case that, uh, the world's leading economies, first you know, the Dutch Republic, soon or more or less soon, as as the Dutch break away from Spain, they also kind of become Protestant and very quickly become the world's leading economy. Eventually, the British overtake them, and then eventually the U.S. overtakes Britain as the world's leading economy. All those are Protest- you know, predominantly Protestant economies. Um, and you know, Weber was writing with, in Prussia, which had a mix of Protestant Catholics at the time. And he did notice that yeah, the Protestant areas of Prussia were better off than the Catholic areas. There's been a lot of research recently that, you know, that supports this notion. Um, and my book does claim that this was not a coincidence. Um, so maybe this may be even a good segue into the kind of the second half of the book. Um, yep. But for very different reasons than Weber proposes. Weber proposes what I would call a highly Eurocentric um, view, uh, a kind of cultural explanation. And I, it might be clear by now that, you know, I don't view, by any means view cultural explanations as bad. In fact, I think, I think culture really matters. And, you know, even if you think of religion as kind of an aspect of culture, it really matters for the way people view the world, for the way politics is done, for all these types of things. But the way Weber viewed it, there, there's just too many holes in the story. I mean, and this, this has been this has been drawn out for a long time. So it was originally Tawny in the 20s that that noted this, and then others. You know, there, there's been like a cottage industry and in, in kind of taking pot shots at the Weberian hypothesis. Um, you know, I guess on the other hand, if uh, if over a hundred years after I write something, people are still talking about it, I wouldn't be too sad, even if they were, even even if to say it was wrong. Um, but. <laughs> The uh, yeah the in in his in his case so I mean just even you know the 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 most obvious counter to this is that 
this capitalist spirit, which he views as inherent in Protestantism, very clearly existed prior to the Reformation. I mean, the Italian cities, even within Europe, the Italian city states are these little capitalist hubs that that you know bring back commerce. Uh, there are spouts of capitalist ideas, you know, throughout you know throughout China, certainly, um, even Central Asia into the Middle East. Um, so to think that it's purely um, something to do with Protestantism, and, and even and even then, a lot of you know, really what he's noting is much more of a Calvinist thing. Now, to be fair, you know, the Calvinist, Calvinist ideas were you know really popular in um, the Netherlands and uh, colonial America as well. But you know, my my take on this is uh, to kind of now I, I think segue a little bit just briefly into the second part of my book is that. This wasn't coincidence in that that I, my book does actually provide an explanation. It's actually consistent with with the theory in my book that Protestant areas did do better, but it had nothing to do with the doct- any type of Protestant doctrine. And to be clear, there's there's not even a religion of Protestantism. You know, there's there's many different Protestant religions, all of which have similar yeah. doctrine, but some of but but um, some being very different than others. It had much more to do with the political economy of Protestant societies. And all I mean by this is what the Reformation did was it provided a death knell to the church wherever it was. And the church was this huge institutional apparatus that even though, you know, as I mentioned before, it was weaker at legitimate or didn't legitimate rule as well as uh, maybe the leading Muslim clerics in the Middle East, it still played a role in legitimating rule for sure. And what the uh, what the Reformation did was it ended this. and. The Protestant religious authorities, they weren't part of a, a broader institutional apparatus, even, or, or, or if they were, like in the case of the Church of England, they were under the ruler's thumb. This was not, this was not a group that really had the legs to legitimate rule. And so what the book says is, is says, well, this doesn't mean that rulers just stopped <laughs> having their rule legitimated by people in society. They had to turn to someone else, in Europe at least. And specifically those parts of Europe that became Protestant. And that's where I, I argue that parliaments were the most obvious place to turn. They were already an organization that w- that had been well established by the Reformation. Most almost everywhere had some some form of parliament in Western Europe, what you know, regardless of what they called it, some place where the leading elites got together to generally negotiate over over various things with, with the king or queen. Generally, they were called when when the crown wanted money to fight wars, but they were the obvious people to turn to. They had power in society for some reason or another. Sometimes, oftentimes, they were composed in part of church churchmen, but also you know, major nobility, but also uh, ur- urban elites. So those engaged in economic activities. And this is where the book says then that what the what the the thing that the Reformation was most important for in terms of economic outcomes was giving a much greater seat at the politi- political bargaining table to the economic elite. And again, this, uh, if the, the line of this argument is this has nothing to do with, with Protestantism or there being some Protestant ethic or any type of doctrine. It has to do with the dismantling of the old political economy and the rulers then having to turn to someone else. And, and those, uh, uh, economic elite were an obvious people to turn to. And so what the book then does is, is it then 
lays this out and it looks specifically at the cases of England and the Dutch Republic where it becomes very clear that parliaments become way more important after the Reformation. And particularly, we, we start seeing it nearly immediately in the types of laws and policies that are put forth. You know, so in the Dutch Republic, you get a ton of new acts that are, that are providing public goods, public goods that encourage trade, that encourage transportation networks. And these are things that the economic elite are not doing out of the kindness of their own heart, but it's because they benefit themselves. But they also do benefit the economy more generally. In England, you know, the process, there, there is a lot of back and forth between parliament and the crown. Um, but the Tudor parliaments, those of the 16th century, are generally kind of congenial. They go back and forth, but in a more congenial way, eventually the Stuarts push back against parliament. It's imploded. <laughs> they, they, they fight a uh, civil war, and, uh, and then the Glorious Revolution removes um, James II. And ultimately, it, parliament becomes supreme in England. And so in England, ultimately, what you get is you know, parliamentary supremacy, which you know, in the context of the way I'm viewing it is – the supremacy of at least those with the those with economic interests have a much larger seat at the bargaining table than they do elsewhere. And I would like to say one more thing before we move on is that I think another misconception of the book and the way I even just described it, and I do try to dispel this in the end, is that I'm not. All, I'm also not saying that a, a country or a state run purely by the economic elite is going to be a good thing either. Uh, you know, the economic elite want things because it suits their own interests. Now, oftentimes, or sometimes, those things benefit society as a whole, but sometimes they don't. You know, they also want monopolies for themselves and their friends. Uh, th- yeah, they often will go to war for commercial privileges, um, things like this. Which, so, But the, the point that the book tries to make, and what, or one of the key points, is that the optimal amount of uh, political bargaining power for the economic elite is not zero, though. You want them to have a seat and probably a fairly important seat at the bargaining table if you want the types of economic law and policies that kind of pretend economic success. And it's just that because of the uh, legitimating arrangements in the Middle East at the time, especially where religion was playing such a role, the economic elite had very little say. That's that's the broader takeaway, I think. Yeah. Um, you talk about you know, the importance of the Reformation as this, this kind of milestone event in this reversal of fortunes. And one of the case studies you use in your book, you talked about usury earlier, but you also talk about the printing press in your book, and that really forms um, one of the key tenets of your argument that the printing press uh, brought about, could I say, brought about the Reformation, and that in turn brought about um, the kind of economic trends that you observed. Could you tell us a bit more about, you know, this relationship? Yeah, so to, to kind of, I guess, back up in a sense. So I use, so I mentioned before, you know, the, the usury case study. And I, I, view, I, I viewed usury as more of a case study than anything else. I, I, I think that usury laws were important for, you know, especially for maybe the lack of banking in the Middle East, things like that. But I, I think more importantly, usury laws were the types of things that kind of are indicative of this broader political economy equilibrium. Now, I did the same thing with the printing press. And I, I briefly mentioned that earlier in the podcast, that namely that in the Middle East, in particular the Ottoman Empire now we're talking about, you had the, the Ottomans more or less banned the printing press for about 250 years. Um, and that was a direct result of the political economy equilibrium in which 
religious authorities had an important seat at the bargaining table. This was not the case in Europe. By 1450, the religion, the, the church had lost, not just, not only had it lost its important seat at the political bargaining table, it had also lost its intellectual monopoly um, for a long, for, you know, for a while until about, about 1200 or so, most of the intellectual work, whether it be, you know, transcribing books or even the very infrequent writing of, of new material would have been done, say, in monasteries or by churchmen. Uh, but the university system that arises beginning in the 13th century uh, begins to undermine that. And so there are these other sources of intellectual, um, the, the spread of intellectual activity as well in Europe. So the situations are very different. And what that, what that means with respect to the printing press is that even had the church wanted to ban the printing press, and they probably should have, <laughs> they couldn't have. Um, because the, the, the other key thing is that, to, to note that, is that the church in Europe or, you say, leading religious authorities in the Middle East, neither, none of them actually have the capacity to ban anything. That requires the, those with the access to violence, you know, the rulers, political leaders, to go along with, with what the religious authorities want. And the point in the book is just that 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 made sense for um, the Ottoman rulers to do so. Religious legitimacy was very important. It, uh, it did not make sense for European rulers. And so what we see is by 1500, even, the printing press is spread throughout Europe. Uh, almost, you know, most major cities have printing presses um, in some way, shape, or form. Huge print centers are everywhere. There are a few a few. Uh, tries here and there to uh, to to slow down printing, but that's actually it tends to not be from the church. It tends to be from the old scribes or scribal guilds, people like that whose livelihoods are threatened. But none of these succeed. The printing press is this new and you know transformative technology. And then the argument. So then I just I, I make the argument, which has long been made, you know, in the the history of the social sciences, um, and. Again, what I what I did was I gathered data to actually kind of substantiate it. It's namely that where you had printing, the Reformation was more likely to succeed. Uh, you know, so you know, one thing that I know is you know it's it's really in a sense no coincidence that print you know printing was invented in Mainz, Germany around 1450, and this print culture emerged in Germany, and then not that long after print really spread. So it takes about you know, 40, 50 years for it to spread, which by the context of late medieval Europe is actually quite quick, um, given especially how capital intensive and how expensive uh, printing presses were. Um, but you know, the printing press, uh, or rather the Reformation, starts about 250 miles away in Wittenberg, Germany. And it's in this kind of area where you, know, you, have, you already have a big print culture. And th- this this connection between the two has long been noted, even by Luther himself, namely that you know the printing press was used to spread propaganda, essentially of the of the Protestants, and this is where I think you know, you, you can say there there was plenty of say demand to use the, the term terminology of economics for the Reformation, or really a movement against the church. There had been plenty of demand for centuries prior to the Reformation itself, which begins in fifteen seventeen. Namely, you know, the church had become increasingly corrupt. There had been many calls uh, for for reform in the church, and really some actually quite aggressive movements. So Jan Hus in Bohemia, for example, is about a hundred years prior to Luther, uh, really uh, threatened the church, and they burned him at the stake. Uh, the the 
idea that I put forth, and again, I'm not certainly not the first person to, to note this, is that a big difference between Luther's movement and the movements of other reformers, including Huss, would have been that he had the press. And what the press did is it allowed these very dangerous ideas to spread more quickly than, um, than the church could react to. So you should, I should also note, you know, and I have some current work, ongoing work on this, is that Luther himself was a pretty important person. So th- this kind of gets out of the narrative itself of the, the broader book. But Luther knew how to use the press. He, he, he wrote hundreds and hundreds of pamphlets. And what the press did that, that just was, would not have been feasible even 50 years earlier was that all these different parts of Europe, whenever Luther would write something, if you were anywhere near a printing press, it would be reprinted in those areas. So all these different parts of Europe, especially Central Europe, but even eventually into Northwestern Europe, um, parts of France, uh, would would receive this you know kind of very very um, anti church rhetoric that really helped make this movement get enough of a footing to succeed. Um, and that's what, so when I was mentioning the usury restrictions before, I was noting that I don't necessarily really view, view usury as a big reason why there was reversal of fortunes between the Middle East and Western Europe. I do think that the printing press was, had, had more direct or rather more importance, but it was its indirect importance rather than its direct importance. It's not that literacy rates shot up or something because people can now have access to books in Europe. It was the indirect importance of the printing press that really mattered. And this indirect importance was that it facilitated massive religious change in the, in the, in the, in the Reformation. And that I view as being fundamentally important because the thing the Reformation did, as we just talked about, was that it fundamentally undermined the political economy of Europe, at least where, where the Reformation succeeded. Whereas, you know, you have parliaments becoming much more important. You have the economic elite becoming much more important, having a much greater say at the political bargaining table. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, given the ubiquity of printed material in this day and age, it's really difficult for us to truly appreciate the importance of the printing press yes. during that time. But as far as, you know, information and communication technologies were concerned, the printing press was a very major breakthrough, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the obvious analogy to the modern day is the internet in the sense that, you know, if you think the pre-internet days before the, the internet days, yeah, the internet is the fundamental inf- information communita- communication technology breakthrough of our lifetime and really probably the last hundred years. But it's probably even more fundamental than that, the, the printing press, in that by the time the internet had come, come about, you know, we were already a connected world. We had telephones, we had telegraph, you know, whatnot. The, the pre-print world was really an unconnected world. It was really hard to get mass, uh, significant information from one place to another, um, and the printing press did that, um, and that's and that's why again, yeah, I, I've said this a few times now. The, the church had they want had they been able to, they probably would have wanted this thing banned. <laughs> you know, a, a, an institution that is is pretty unpopular is not going to want uh, an information communication technology out there that allows the seeds of dissent to uh, to spread. I mean, that's why even in modern day, you, you see. Um, uh, many regimes banning social media, right? It's a sim- very similar idea. You know, that's what social media does is it allows thoughts to uh, yeah, spread instantaneously and even d- dissent to spread instantaneously. 
while of course the printed the printing press didn't do that you know relative to what relative to the preprint world it might as well have been instantaneous mm-hmm. um let's move on to um you know your broader research interests this book is just one in a series of publications you've authored on the role of religion in politics and in the economy you say you're working on another right now um what is perhaps the most important thing that you think people should take away from your work about the relationship between religion and the economy? Wow, that's a great question. Um, so, I mean, in, in this, this really does come through, I think, in my book, and we've actually already discussed it. I mean, I think the main thing that I, I would like people to take away yeah, from my book, but also from my work more generally, is that on the one hand, religion does matter for economic development, economic growth. And, and really, yeah, I'm not obviously not the first person to say that. But I am, um, in fact, there's a huge literature that's blossomed in the last 10 years, uh, uh, mostly done by economists and political scientists that has, um, that has really shown the many different ways in which religion affects economic and political outcomes. I think the one thing that I would like to take people to take away from my work though, is that, that really the first order effects of religion on economic and political outcomes come through politics, come through the, the role that religion or really, and, and we could even go a little more, a little broadly, since you asked about some of my other work as well, ideology and culture more, more generally that, that when we're talking about decision-making at that, that, that can affect you know, societies at large, that's where, you know, religion or maybe ideology might even be a better word because ideology can be religious, but it can also be secular because I, I think that what, you know, the type of stuff we're talking about could just as well be applied to say communist ideology or, or frankly, even capitalist ideology, um, that, that the way people view the world, the lens through which people view the world certainly has an effect on their very microeconomic actions, but cumulatively, this also builds up into the institutions in the societies in which these people live, or, you know, people everywhere live. And that's, and that's the, those are the mechanisms through which what we, you know, what we what we're calling here, religion, culture, ideology, those are the mechanisms through which, um, I think the long, the long run impact and the, the, the long run trajectory of economies in different parts of the world is really affected by ideology. So that, I, I think that would be the thing that I would like people to take away most from my work, because I, I believe this to be true. And I believe this to be true, not just because it's some nilly willy belief, but because that's, that's where my, my research has taken me. And, and this is, this is, you know, again, as we were talking about earlier, I've been doing this, uh, so this kind of very narrow topic for a very for a long enough now where I feel like I have some some authority to speak on it, and that that would be the one takeaway I would like people to to take. Mm-hmm. That's very very well said. Um, I think we've taken up quite enough of your time today, but before we end, I'd just like to ask um, if you could have anyone, if you could interview anyone for their new book in history, who would that be? So, new book being in the last four to five years. Sure. Yeah, so can I can I maybe say two people? Of course. <laughs> so um, both people I've I've heard give interviews that I'm thinking of, and they're just fascinating people and have fascinating insights. So the first one would be somebody I did mention briefly before is Joel Moykier. 
mm-hmm. um, who is just, uh, yeah, just a polymath in many ways. Uh, his books are, uh, yeah, especially uh, his his recent books on the you know, the enlightened economy, which is two thousand nine, the culture of growth, two thousand sixteen, are just have so much knowledge packed into them, um, and and they're they're also getting at the big big possibly you know the biggest questions in in economics and certainly economic history you know why 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 England what happened and what why did why did part of this world take off and he's done it in such a compelling way and in a new way and and for me that's it's such such a kind of not just a source of inspiration but a source of admiration he he just so knowledgeable and if I, he's the type of person when you're around him to, you know, if you say, man, if I could just have one hundredth of the knowledge of this guy, <laughs> I'd be, be a very happy person. Um, and he's also a very entertaining person. So in terms of the podcast format, um, that would be great. And the other person um, whose work I really like, and I also heard, uh, I think last year on a podcast and just made some amazing points is Walter Scheidel. Um, mm-hmm. He's written two recent books, his most recent book, Escape from Rome, um, I've read recently, I'm actually teaching, uh, uh, I'm teaching a class this uh, semester and uh, we're, we're reading four books and Escape from Rome is one of them. He wrote a, a book a few years ago called The Great Leveler. Um, the, the Great Leveler looks at uh, various things that have various sources of, uh, that have kind of leveled inequality over time. You know, these kind of the great, the great horsemen, plague and um, disease and uh, war, things like that. And his escape from Rome is kind of looking at the, the legacy of Rome on political and economic development over a very long period of time throughout the entire world. It's really a magnificent tome. And yeah, so I heard him on a podcast that I really like called Tides of History, where he was talking about what he does in Escape from Rome is he really thinks through the counterfactuals. And this is something that economists do, I think. The, 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 this is the way economists think, is we think in terms of counterfactuals, that's how we think about causality. But it's something historians often, even though I think historians often do implicit counterfactuals, um, are a, a little less inclined to think that way. And he discusses in his book, and he's discussed in the podcast before, and just fascinating to, uh, he, he's kind of methodologically a fascinating thinker. Um, so, th- yeah, those would be my my two announcers off the top of my head. I mean, I could think of a ton of others. Um, now, a good friend of mine, uh, Mark Koyama, recently wrote a, a very fascinating book with uh, Noel Johnson called "Persecution Toleration," where they look at um, the kind of the the role that political economy played in uh, persecution throughout much of European history, and they have some really really fascinating insights in that book. And it's you know kind of very much up my alley, and I think our the book that we're dis- we've discussed in this podcast complements theirs very well. Um, so those would be a few. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your recommendations. Well, and thank you so much for spending a good hour of your time talking to us today, Jared. It's been an absolute pleasure and we look forward to having you on the program again. It has been very fun. Thank you. On that note, thank you for your time and thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in History. <laughs>